The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple. They have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins. For your name's sake, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Now that's a mournful psalm. I mean, at the beginning, you got the, the nations have destroyed the temple and the inheritance, the dead bodies are in the streets. Guess what? Self-inflicted wound. All right, they were told in Leviticus chapter 26, if you were, weren't, didn't sleep during that sermon, what was coming upon them, or actually those three sermons, okay? At the same time, as happens in history, and why David made the choice he did about uh, his own transgression, which I'll explain in a second, the nations of the world came against Israel and they took the judgment of God too far. And so he's appealing for vindication over them because of how they have treated the people of God. So one, it's a self-inflicted wound. Two, just like Hitler took things too far. And what was I going to say about David? It's that when David took a census, which was against the law of Israel, okay, he was not supposed to do that. It was a prideful thing. The Lord gave him three options. He said, three days of plague among your people, three uh, months of, um, oh, I'm sorry, three years of famine, or three months of your enemies coming to attack you and destroy you. And David answered, the Lord, let him judge us because our enemies will have no mercy on us. He was very wise in that decision. And so there were three days of famine upon the people. Now, I hope I got all three of those correct. I think I did in my head. I'm doing this off the top of my head here. But understand, one, that when you read the Bible and terrible things happen, it is almost always a self-inflicted wound. But when terrible things happen, the people of the world take it too far. There needs to be moderation in how we deal with things and all things, but humans are not known for that. We tend to fly off the handle way too quickly. And so that's what happens when they come against Israel. And unfortunately, that's what's going to happen in the end times as two-thirds of the people of Israel are going to be destroyed along with much of the world. Anyway, we're in Numbers today, Numbers chapter 5 today. It's verses 1 through 10, and this is called a conscience cleansed. Before I read these verses, you're going to hear some things that I say in this sermon that were identical to what Jim opened us with today. So we have, once again, things just popping in that uh, uh, happen to be thought by one person that happen to be thought by another, including actual quotes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I was sitting there stewing. He's stealing my sermon, right? <laughs> anyway, here we go. This is called a conscience cleansed, Numbers 5, 1 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel when a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his, and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his. There are two short sections in today's verses. The first deals with physical defilement, which necessitates the removal of an individual from the camp of Israel. The second deals with committed sin, which defiles the conscience and which must be dealt with in order to remove guilt. An age-old question for believers is, do I have to confess my sins to the Lord if I'm already forgiven of what I've done wrong? Has anybody ever asked that question? Do I need to confess my sins to the Lord even though I'm saved? The question is asked, and then it's asked again, and then it is asked again. Quite often, the same person asks it several times as he tries to find an answer which resolves the matter suitably for him. The fact that this is the case tells us that we worry about wrongdoing because we know that we have done wrong. My thought on this is that if we know that we've done wrong and we worry if we need to acknowledge that wrongdoing or not, It should already tell us the answer to the question. One logical answer should be based on the question, though. If I don't confess my sins, can I lose my salvation? The answer is a resounding no. We will not lose our salvation over this or any other matter. Logic alone tells us that both thoughts are true. No, we do not need need to confess our sins after being saved or we will lose our salvation. And no, we cannot lose our salvation. Having said that, the logical answer does not resolve the obvious problem. I have done wrong before the Lord and I feel guilty about it. If you've done wrong and you don't feel guilty about it, you have a completely different and a much worse problem. You have a heart problem. Our text verse comes from Romans 10. It's verses 9 and 10. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does Jesus read the hearts and minds of his people? Anybody? Well, yes. Yes, he does. So we can confess the Lord Jesus and yet not believe in our hearts and we will not be saved. On the flip side, we can assume that Jesus reads our hearts and we can then figure we are saved without confessing with our mouths the Lord Jesus. What's the point if he has already read our heart? But Paul ties the two together as one act. Indeed, who, without working vocal cords, would believe in the Lord Jesus and not confess him with their mouth? If I steal something from my mother and she sees me doing it and I know that she saw me and yet she says nothing about it, am I free from guilt? No, not at all. Maybe she just doesn't want to argue, but I have done wrong. In order to truly make restitution for what I've done, I need to own up to my wrongdoing. She already knows, but that is insufficient to resolve the issue of her offense and now also my guilty conscience. Why? Why would we treat the Lord Jesus any differently? It actually bothers me when people argue that we do not need to confess our sins before the Lord. Do we think that just because he knows that we've done wrong, we don't need to admit it? That is as arrogant as a Democrat spending your tax dollars, even more so. Every time that we say, I don't need to talk to the Lord about my sin, two things happen. First, our hearts get a little bit more callous to our sin, and secondly, we put up that much more of a wall between ourselves and the Lord. That wall will be broken down someday, I guarantee it, and our deeds will be passed through the fire. In the end, what is left will be our lot. I talked to the Lord about how happy I am it rained today. Have you ever gone through a real long time with no rain and it rains and you say, thank you, Lord? I do that all the time. As a matter of fact, I even do it when it rained yesterday. I love the rain. And so I always thank the Lord. I talk to the Lord about how nice flowers are. When I see a beautiful flower at the store, I say, isn't that, Lord, that is wonderful. Thank you for that. 
I talk to the Lord about how wonderful his word is. I talk to the Lord about how angry I am at the wicked, and I've done that a lot this week. I can tell you that. I talk to him about this, and I talk to him about that. But I won't talk to him about my wrongdoing. How stupid. The arrogance of this mindset is poison. Who cares what the logical outcome of a matter is if it harms us in the process? Let us take all of what is in our heart and gladly share it with him. So what if he already knows it? He knows that you love him, but he'd sure like to hear you confess it to him with your lips once in a while. Get right thinking along with sound doctrine. The two go hand in hand. The place to get right doctrine is right here from the pages of the Bible. The place to get right wisdom is right here in the pages of the Bible. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two short thoughts for you today. The first is separation from defilement. It's verses one through four. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the normal address of the Lord to Moses, and it indicates a new section is being introduced. The words of chapter five are actually divided into three sections. The first one is just four verses long, and it will deal with purity within the camp. The second section, which goes from verse five until verse 10, will deal with restitution for wrongdoing. The third section, which is next week's sermon, goes from verse 11 until the end of the chapter, and that concerns the law of jealousy in a husband concerning a wife that may have been unfaithful to him. It's a very complicated passage. It's wonderful in what it pictures. The overall idea of these verses, then, is the sanctity and purity of the camp. But the thought won't stop here. It will carry on through chapter 5. Anything impure or undefiled is to be removed from the camp. If we think about it from a logical perspective, this is the perfect place for these rules to be stated. There has been a meticulous and orderly arrangement of the camp over the past chapters. In the middle of the camp is the sanctuary where the Lord dwells. The camp, now laid out as directed by him, is to be pure, holy, and undefiled. And so before setting out towards Canaan, the laws of exclusion from the camp and other such laws which conform to that idea are expressed now. Such a law of purity will actually be given concerning the whole land of Canaan in Numbers chapter 35. When the people arrive right outside of its borders, they will be told this. So you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. As the Lord dwells in the midst of the camp now, he will dwell in the midst of the land and among his people once they arrive in Canaan. And these Old Testament lessons are given as mere types and shadows of the greater picture of purity, which is anticipated in the new heavens and earth, which are described in Revelation chapter 21 with these beautiful words. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There the Lord will dwell in the temple in the midst of the people and the pure undefiled and holy state which was anticipated in the people of Israel will be realized in its fullness in the people of God. Verse 2, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper. The first note of instruction concerning purity is to exclude those who are defiled from remaining within the camp. Beginning with lepers, the Lord directs Moses to command the people to put them outside the camp where he dwells. One point that is interesting to contemplate is that these directions are only coming about now, after the layout of the camp has been given. The directions for all of these exclusions came about in Leviticus. For example, the laws concerning leprosy are found in great detail in Leviticus 13 and 14. Chapter 13 identified what it meant to be leprous in body, and chapter 14 explained what it meant to be cleansed in the body from that leprosy. Now, did he, at the end of giving those verses to Moses, did he say, okay, now I want you to go enact these laws that I've given you? No, he waited until now, which is some time later to do it. The word here shows that there are, in fact, lepers and other defiled people within the camp. However, only now, after the camp has been laid out by the Lord and the duties of the Levites have been explained, are the laws of leprosy being enacted among the people. 
In this, we can see that there is the material aspect of the camp, and then there is the form of the camp. The two are not the same. A human is made of materials, but unless the body is animated by the soul, it is simply a compilation of materials. Only when the form comes into existence is the man considered a human. The same is true here. The materials of the camp existed, but only when the form of the camp came into existence is the direction for meeting the previously laid out commands concerning purity actually applied. What this means in its pictorial sense is concerning what the form of the camp is. What is the form of the camp? You all saw it. We saw that the layout forms a cross. Regardless as to whether the camp was actually able to form this cross at all times or not, based on the surrounding landscape, the intended form is given. As the cross is the true fount of all cleansing of those things which are spiritual, those defilements within the camp, such as leprosy, must be removed. If you remember, each defilement named in Leviticus pointed to a spiritual defilement in the New Testament. Thus, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is the defining standard for purity for the people of God. What we are instructed in the New Testament epistles is given to maintain its purity. If we are unclean, according to those letters, we are to be separated from the camp. This is noted in several ways by Paul himself, such as two examples, which I'm going to now read you. The first one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you? For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. I left out the intervening verses. I just want you to know. He said, this is the problem. This is the cure. Get him out of there. Put away from yourselves the evil person. And then from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, Note that person and do not keep company with him. Put him outside the camp, basically, okay? That he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There is a formative power in biblical ideas which needs to be considered when we look at Scripture. When we come at the doctrines of the Bible in a willy-nilly way, we will inevitably and always, always, always have unsound doctrine. And yet, this has been and it continues to be the standard for most people in the faith. It isn't just a modern thing which has come about in recent years. Rather, it has been this way since the very beginning. Paul says as much right in the book of Ephesians. That's why he wrote his letters is because things weren't being done properly. They're all written against some type of heresy or some type of bad doctrine. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joint and knit, together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul notes the materials and the form. Without the form, we are simply being blown about by every wind of doctrine, be it sound or unsound. The camp of Israel is now a form, and that form is to be respected, kept pure, and sanctified in its service to the Lord. The church of God is also a form, and likewise, that form is to be respected, kept pure, and sanctified in its service to the Lord. 
When we depart from what is given in Scripture, or when we willy-nilly pull apart the form, we end up with every possible bad doctrine that can be made up. I brought up Andy Stanley in our Prophecy Update today, and we talked about the doctrine which was incorrect because he's pulling it out willy-nilly. He's not doing a proper exegesis of the Bible. It fills our pulpits, and this in turn expands out to fill the entire congregation. If that congregation includes a TV or an internet ministry, it goes out even further. There must be a respect for the word, carefully transmitted through the leader of the congregation to the people of God, or there will be only breakdown, disorder, and impurity. The direction to remove these impure people from the camp at this time isn't just an arbitrary decision that the Lord got to when he felt like it. It is a precisely determined decision based on the cross of Jesus Christ, which is now on display for the people of the world to see, even if nobody sees it. The form exists, and it is to be honored for what it signifies. With that in mind, the lepers were to be removed from the camp. The types of leprosy were named and carefully evaluated. To fully understand how they point to spiritual truths, you should go back and brush up on those Leviticus sermons. But as a few examples to remind you, in just one verse, in Leviticus 13, verse 2, several types of leprosy disorders were named. The se'et, or swelling, which is spiritually equated to the pride of life. The safachat, or scab, was equated to that which is vile, the lust of the flesh. And the baharet, or bright spot, indicated that which draws attention to itself, the lust of the eyes. Each and every leprosy pointed to a spiritual defect in man that needs to be kept away from or corrected in order to ensure purity within the camp. Verse 2 continues, everyone who has a discharge, discharges of all sorts, whether flowing or stopped up, were considered unclean and they mandated exclusion from the camp. These were detailed in Leviticus 15. As we saw, there were many types of them. But for a quick synopsis, they pictured both active and passive sins of the flesh. A person engaged in making pornography would be considered an active discharge. On the other hand, a person who merely looked at pornography would be a stopped-up discharge. One is outwardly evident, the other is inwardly so. This same concept can be seen in multiple times in the sins of the flesh. In such, the person is defiled and he is unclean. For Israel, the physical discharges meant that they were to be excluded from the camp of the Lord, lest they defile it. For the church, such sins of the flesh mandate excommunication from fellowship within the church. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that I just read you, all right? The physical looks forward to the spiritual, but in both, the sanctity and purity of the camp of God's people is what is expected. What this means is that almost all of those and I mean almost all of those in liberal churches across the world are, by their very nature, and because of their tolerance of sexual sins, impure. They stand outside of the Lord's favor, and we are to have no fellowship with them. I know that may hurt if you've got friends that are in an Episcopal church or in a uh, Methodist church, and they're condoning these things. But if they say, I am a brother, and I accept these things, and you're not to have fellowship with them. You have to have a defining line. Verse 2 continues, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. The wording here says defiled because of a soul. However, all translators and scholars attribute this to either a dead person in general or more specifically, a corpse. This category is defined and procedures for cleansing from it will be found in Numbers chapter 19. However, it's already been mentioned for priests in Leviticus. People die because of sin. It is the ultimate and final testament that a person had received what they deserved for the sin in their lives. Simply put, being a descendant of Adam, we inherited his sin, and we are destined to die because of that. Touching a corpse then brings about defilement in Israel, just as touching sin in any shape or form brings about defilement in us. Peter gives the church an example for us to follow concerning Christ's death and what it means to those who are in him now. Here's what he says. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Verse 3, you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp. Although it was surely already understood because of the previous regulations of Leviticus, 
These words here are given to show that there would be no misunderstanding. Males were not exempt. It didn't matter if they were young or old, commoner, soldier, or priest, they were to be put out. Likewise, women were not exempt because they were not soldiers or priests. Any who defiled were to be put outside of the camp. In Numbers 12, even Miriam, Moses' sister, will be sent outside the camp when the plague of leprosy comes upon her. No exceptions were allowed to the rule of purity and sanctity within the camp. This was so, verse 3 continues, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. There's the old saying that cleanliness is next to godliness. However, what these words state is that cleanliness is a part of godliness. This was to be the state of the people. The physical here points to the spiritual in the church. Those unclean were to be taken from his presence. He had graciously agreed to dwell in their midst, and there was a high and expected to be met standard for this honor. We can frown upon each of these physical pollutions and say that it was right and it was proper that they were to be set outside of the camp. But do we feel the same about the even more polluting spiritual defilements which they picture? Or will we overlook the faults which are openly seen and allow them to tarnish the purity of the camp of God's people? Everybody got that? What do we do when somebody's got a plague? We isolate them. We take them to a special place and we isolate them. And that's what the Lord is doing. He's saying these people have physical defilements. But those physical defilements only picture spiritual defilements of people. Are we willing to take the same effort and say we have to isolate this person from the people of God? This is not meant, though, that we are to be legalistic, arrogant, snobbish sorts who look down on the occasional faults or misspoken words of those around us. There must be gracious allowances for situations which arise from stresses, from trials, and from the like. But there are to be standards which are to be held in high regard for those who flagrantly allow their uncleanness to go uncorrected. The Lord expected nothing less from Israel, and he expects nothing less from us. Before going on, we should consider that some of the things which defiled a person required exclusion for a set period of time, such as seven days. Others made a person unclean for an undefined amount of time. They simply remained unclean until their affliction was cured. Further, only the things which have been identified by name here require exclusion from the camp. Some things defiled for a single day. The term, if you remember, we said it 27 times, unclean until evening was seen in Leviticus. Remember when we were going through those and I kept saying unclean until evening. I kept, what's he talking about, right? This type of uncleanliness did not require expulsion from the camp. Likewise, a woman was considered unclean for a set period of time after giving birth to a child, but she was only kept from the holy things. She was not separated from the camp. And because of this, John Calvin rightly said, God was not acting as a physician and merely consulting the health of the people, but exercised them in purity. For by joining with the lepers, those who had an issue and so on, he instructs the people simply to keep away from all uncleanness. Finally, in this verse is a rare term. It says, in their camps. The plural is suspected to mean one of two things. The first would be the various camps as they're arranged around the sanctuary such as the divisions to the east, which included Moses and Aaron, and then the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Or it may mean the three divisions of the camps. The sanctuary is in the middle, the Levites are around that, and then the rest of Israel, which branches out. Either way, the plural signifies an all-inclusive counting of the entire congregation. All camps are to remain free from all defilement. Verse 4, and the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. There's no way of knowing the number of people who were so affected, but it would have been no small number. The term leprosy signifies more than what we think of it today. We think of Hansen's disease. It actually means all kinds of skin diseases. Discharges come at any time and for a wide range of reasons, and they can linger for quite a while, depending on what type of discharge it is. The woman in the Gospels who has a discharge of blood was in that state for 12 years. And then, in a congregation of two to three million people, the number of deaths on any given day would not be small. The number of those defiled by a corpse would not be insignificant. Were the body of people not a cohesive body, the separation mandated here could actually cause riots or even worse. But because of what had been jointly experienced by all, and because of the obvious presence of the Lord, the separation of the people would be an act of faith 
but it would be faithfully acted upon, as is now noted. The Lord has spoken, and the people have complied. It is noted that this is the earliest record of such a separation of defiled people. Beyond this, we can only speculate as to how or where they were kept separate. But the fact that they were kept separate teaches us something, doesn't it? They were kept. People who were a part of the congregation and who were defiled in a way which excluded them from fellowship with the congregation were still a part of it. They were not told to depart and just keep on walking. Instead, they were set out in a particular place and they were provided for from the camp itself. When manna fell, they still would receive the angel's food. This takes us back to the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, which instructed us concerning a wayward brother. We are not to keep company with him that he may be ashamed, but we are not to count him as an enemy. In the camp is fellowship. In the camp is acceptance. In the camp is also safety. Wayward brothers forsake those things, but they are still brothers. Some of the most harmful people of all are in the church. When a fellow Christian walks out of proper bounds, there is always to be found one or two ultra-pious and extra-holy church members who go and eviscerate them, and they tell them to walk and to keep on walking. They are uncompassionate, self-righteous, and yet probably filled with more internal wickedness than a truckload of unsaved sinners. The finger pointers cause much damage and have little true value to the church as a whole. Watch out for finger pointers. Verse 4 continues, As the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. As always, this here is a verse of compliance to show that what was expected was followed through with. The Lord spoke, Moses relayed what was expected, and the congregation as a whole complied. Just imagine if the same attitude was seen in the church as a whole today. God gave us his word, the Holy Bible. From there, church pastors then relay that word in context and as expected to the congregation. And then from there, the congregation does as they have heard. Wake up, Charlie. You seem to have been dreaming for a moment. Well, someday, a new order of things will come about. In that day, things will be as they should. And won't that be marvelous? What is it that makes a soul unclean? What is it makes us defiled before our God? Is it something that's visibly seen? Or is it rather something about our earthly trod? Certainly, it is something from within us. It is that which springs forth from deep within the heart. And there is no cure for it apart from Jesus. Only through him can we make a brand new start. Our lives are not our own, and only one master can we serve. It is either the devil and our working a life of sin, or it is Jesus Christ who can our soul preserve. Without him in our lives, we are certainly done in. Lead us to the fount from where all cleansing does flow. Show us the way, and to there we shall go. Thank God for what he has done through Christ Jesus. Thank God for what he has done for each one of us. Our second thought today, confess and be restored. Verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the exact same words as verse 1 are once again repeated. A new thought will be presented first to Moses and then for Moses to act upon. And so the Lord says, verse 6, speak to the children of Israel. In verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, command the children of Israel. The Lord expected his words would be acted upon and without exception. Here, the Lord is giving further instruction to something already presented. And so rather than command at this time, Moses is instructed to speak the words out as they are conveyed to him. As the first section dealt with purity, this one deals with integrity. It would make no sense, however, to have the two reversed. An impure person could not make the restitution that is now conveyed due to their unclean state. Again, as always, there is sound logic behind the progression of thoughts as they are presented. Verse 6 continues, When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord. Two separate but completely connected thoughts are brought into focus here. The first is that a man or a woman sins against another person, meaning a son of Adam. The Hebrew reads, any sins of the man. The Holman Bible does well by saying, when a man or a woman commits any sin against another. The thought here is one of case in the language. We have in Matthew 12, verse 31, what is referred to as blasphemy of the spirit. However, in Matthew 3 and in Luke 12, the same thing is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is what is now being conveyed for us in the book of Numbers. The of means against. The second thing is that such an act is considered as a trespass against the Lord. 
as the Hebrew reads, trespassing as a trespass against Jehovah. And so what we have here is one person causing harm to another is considered as breaking faith with the Lord, even if they did not know that they had so broken the faith. Even if this is the case, it is still considered as a trespass against the Lord's righteousness. When discovered, it thus needs to be corrected. Verse 6 continues, and that person is guilty. The person is trespassed against the Lord. Some people harm others and they couldn't care at all. To them, there's no need to make restitution for their wrongdoing. This is not the case where someone has done wrong, others know about it, and he is brought before the judges. There are already provisions for such things. Therefore, the word guilty here is one of conscience. The guilt is real before the Lord, but it is the conscience which causes the guilt to be realized in the individual. This is why the ESV says of these words, and that person realizes his guilt. This is important. When we offend another person in Christ, we are guilty before the Lord. Until we acknowledge that and say, I'm going to make restitution of this, we are guilty before the Lord. You talk about rewards and losses when you stand before the Lord. This is one of the things. You've done something wrong against somebody, and finally you realize, I did something wrong against that person. And you say, you know what? I've thought about this long enough. I've processed this and I'm going to go make restitution for him. I'm going to confess to them because by confessing to them, I'm confessing to the Lord and he's going to wipe that off of your losses from your judgment. Okay, this is what is important about these things. As we talked about in the prophecy update, the old looks forward to the new. We don't just reject the old and say it was a bad God. We understand why he gave these laws and how important it is to be in Christ. Okay, because he has fulfilled these things for us. But the precepts remain true. The person has done something and now he realizes his guilt before the Lord and he, man or woman, now wants to make it right before the Lord. Verse 7, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. They say confession is good for the soul. This is the idea behind these words. Confession may also be expensive depending on the matter, but the sleep of a person who has done what is right will be sweet and well-deserved. In the case of this matter, without confession, guilt remains. Without confession, mercy is not granted. Without confession, the conscience remains defiled. Verse 7 continues, he shall make restitution for his trespass in full. The Hebrew reads, he shall restore his guilt. The abstract is given for the concrete. He has guilt and it requires restoration in order to be nullified. But in order to make it acceptable, a fine is imposed upon him as well. Verse 7 continues, plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. In such a case, as is seen here, there is one, confession, taking the shame upon himself and not denying what has occurred. Two, restoring the principle. It must be the same thing or that of equal value and or comparable nature. And three, a one-fifth addition, a compensation for having done the thing in the first place, for having inconvenienced another in the process, and to discourage this in himself and others in the future. This one-fifth edition is seen in Leviticus also in regards to the unintentional eating of a holy offering and also in the redemption of an unclean animal and in the redemption of tithes. However, when reading the Bible, there may seem to be a contradiction in this penalty. In Exodus 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. There's no contradiction here. One is a brazen act of theft, the other is a trespass which is realized, acknowledged, and of which restitution is made. Verse 8, but if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong. The word here for relative is the word goel. It signifies a kinsman redeemer. Almost without exception, scholars say that this supposes that the person who was offended was either dead or had moved away. Thus, restitution could not be made to him. John Lang, however, is correct. He seems to be right in saying that this is speaking of either the offended man himself or someone who could act in his stead. The reason for this is that the goel, or receiver of the restitution, is the one who actually frees the guilty person of the guilt of his conscience. Thus, it is the one originally offended or someone who acts in his place. They accept the restitution and they acknowledge acceptance of the man's guilt freeing him from his conscience against them. In this, his conscience against the Lord is also cleared. If no such goel exists, verse 8 continues, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. The priest is the mediator between the people of Israel and the Lord. 
Thus, he acts in the place of the Goel to whom restoration could not be made. It is the priest who thus is provided to clear the conscience of the offender. What is stated in these verses is supplementary to the law recorded in Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 7, and it is necessary. If a person had no one to pay restitution to, then he would actually profit off of his offense. Therefore, the restitution, if not to a goel, is recompensed to the Lord, who is actually a joint plaintiff through the priest. Therefore, the priest receives the restitution, the one-fifth addition, along with one more thing. Verse 8 continues, in addition to the ram of the atonement, with which atonement is made for him. The ram offering here is mandated first in Leviticus 6, verse 6. But the offering itself, how it is presented and the like, is detailed in Leviticus chapter 7. Every portion of that instruction, to the finest detail, pictured the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you missed that sermon, or if you cannot quote it word for word as it was presented to you, you should go home and brush up on it this evening. It really was a remarkable picture of the work of Jesus. It is this ram which is said to be the covering which covers. In other words, the offense is covered, and the Lord no longer views it as an offense against him. Instead, he only sees the offering. Such is the nature of Christ's work. He is our offering of atonement. When we come to God through him, the Lord no longer sees our sins, but rather he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. What a bargain that is for the weary soul once weighed down with guilt. Verse 9, every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. The Hebrew here is specific, terumah, or heave offering. It is that which is lifted up to the Lord as a whole or as a part of a larger mass which is lifted up. It is speaking not of sacrifices which were burnt up to the Lord. Instead, it is referring to dedicated offerings, first fruits, tithes, and things like that. Any such offering which was brought from the people belonged to the priest. Verse 10 finishes us up with, And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his. There are obviously three categories of things which would come before the Lord. Those things which would be burned up to the Lord, either holy or in part. Those things which were shared between the Lord and the people, such as the fellowship offerings. And then there were those things which were not burned up and which did not go back to the offer. In this third case, all such things became the property of the priests. First fruit offerings were made to the Lord, but they weren't burned up on the altar. Such is also the case with the tithes and with other things. These things had to have a place of possession. And because they were offered to the Lord, that place of possession remained with the priests who served the Lord on behalf of the people. In Israel, everything, everything found a place. And the law would work well if it was properly handled by priest and by people. Unfortunately, the ideals set here were abused by both. The priests misused their position, such as the sons of Eli, the people misused theirs by offering defiled gifts. And then the priests would accept those defiled gifts and pass them on to the Lord. The thing the law of Moses could never, never solve, it could never solve it, was the problem of the heart of man. As the Lord said through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Despite the magnificent structure of the precision of the law of Moses, it was ineffectual in resolving the problem of the heart. However, what Christ did does solve that matter. This is because what he did is not for a particular group of people who already claim that they are the Lord's. Instead, it is designed for any who desire to be the Lord's. Does everybody understand that being born into a Christian house does not make you a Christian? Because much of the Christian world doesn't understand that. And that is what's being taught right here. Christ is the resolution for the heart problem. It is therefore based on an understanding that that individual needs to be the Lord's. The heart problem is dealt with right at the beginning of the equation. Let me take you back to our text verse for today, and you'll understand why I read it. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart 
that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The heart problem is dealt with at the beginning. We don't have to worry about being Israel and saying, well, I can cheat my brother. I can cheat the Lord. Ain't going to happen. He's already read your heart and mind. He knows these things. This doesn't mean that the heart isn't going to get jaded, return to dishonesty or get swayed by temptations. What it does mean is that those things will be handled by the Lord as a father would to his wayward son, not an illegitimate son. What we are seeing in the words of the law are anticipatory markers of what Jesus Christ would come to do for us in a much, much more perfect way. Let us be assured of his good and kind favor upon us if we have called on Jesus. That is, capital I-F, if we have called on Jesus. There's no need to wonder if we are God's children if we have done so. All we need to do is settle the matter once and for all. When we do, we are his from there, let us remember that we are and then honor our Heavenly Father in a way which will bring Him glory and which will keep us from the need of once again clearing our guilty conscience. The deal is done in Christ. This is an appeal to anyone that clicks onto this sermon and has never understood that they are not a Christian because their mom or dad was a Christian. This is an appeal to anybody that understands that they have done something wrong and they know there's a God and they need to be reconciled to Him. The answer is Jesus. He is the Son of God. God stepped out of the infinite realm, united with humanity in the person of Jesus, and he was born under this law that he wrote, by the way. He wrote this law and gave it to Israel. And he said, I'm not going to exempt myself from what I've given to these people. But he didn't do it to lord it over them. He did it to show them how much he loved them. Everything that he gave them was in anticipation of his coming. He was born under this law. He subjected himself to this law, and he lived this law perfectly. He never had a guilty conscience. He never did anything wrong against his brother, but guess what he did? He gave up his life in exchange for the things of, that the people of Israel and the people after that time have done. He said, I'm going to take their guilt upon myself. He is that ram, that atonement covering. He gave his life up on the cross of Calvary voluntarily to pay for our sin debt. And then he went into the grave and then he came out of the grave, proving that he had no sin of his own. All of your sin died with him, and he came back out of the grave, washing away your sin. The law of Moses is done. It is done. Every single thing that I cherish in these sermons. I don't hate this law of Moses. People think, oh, I hate the law. I'm going to hell because I'm telling people not to observe the law. No, I love this law. That's why I read this law. That's why I preach this law. You know how easy it would be to preach sermons from the New Testament? I'm telling you what, I could sit down and I could type a sermon in an hour and be done, and we'd be done with the sermon. We all feel good about ourselves. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's all written there in Paul's hand, and it makes sense. Typing these sermons from the Old Testament is absolutely murderous on Monday. I don't, the, the phone rings. I don't want to even know that it's there. I actually unplug it some days because I'm so into what I'm doing. It is a lot of hard work, and it's study, but I love it. Because this is what tells us about what is coming. And this tells us what we would be under without him. We are all obligated to this law without coming to Jesus Christ. That's the error of the Hebrew Roots movement. And I would pray that every person would understand that. He has done it. Give your life over to him and don't worry about, you want to observe a Sabbath on Saturday, go ahead. But if you say you have to do it, you have departed from the grace of Jesus Christ. Do not add anything to what he has done. Nothing. All right, please call on Jesus. Please call on Jesus and be reconciled to God through his shed blood. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter nine. We'll get to chapter nine in about four months, maybe a little less. <laughs> For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean signifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What wonderful words. Conscience cleaned. Uh, remember the title of the sermon? Let me take you back there and read it to you. A conscience cleansed. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Next week is Numbers uh, 5, verses 11 through 31. To decide concerning the husband's wrath. This is entitled The Holy Polygraph. That'll be our 10th number sermon. No, I didn't think of that. A law officer out in Washington State watches our sermons every single week. And he said, I can't wait till you get, he's been begging me for this for, for months now. And he said, I can't wait to see what the Holy Polygraph is picturing. And I said, I'm going with that. I'm going to steal his words. 
Uh, he's an officer. He thinks like an officer. I thought that was classic. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a poem today for you called A Conscience Cleanse. But before I give that poem, I want to let you know we have a police officer in this church right now, a retired one. We have one in Naples that watches us every week. She can't come up here anymore to attend with us, so she's down there watching with us. We've got a police officer out in uh, El Paso, Texas. We've got another one. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's in California. I'm going to say Sacramento, but I know it's not. These cops seem to like the superior word. Praise God for that. We're protected all over the place. Wow. I know there's one more, too. I, you know, I shouldn't have done that because somebody's going to feel bad that I rejected one of them, and I'm not. I just, I'm not thinking right now. Okay, here's our poem. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words to him he was then relaying. Command the children of Israel that they may put out of the camp every leper, so you shall do, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, too. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, as to you I now tell, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as he did tell. As the Lord spoke to Moses, so did the children of Israel. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These words to him he was next relaying. Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin, which may be that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full. Yes, completely. Plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged, so shall it be. But if the man has no relative to whom for the wrong may be made restitution, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him, so will be the solution. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his, so to you I do now tell. And every man's holy things shall be his, you see. Whatever any man gives the priest shall his be. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for a conscience cleansed. Amen.